You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. Before we serve up this week's episode of In This Economy, I wanted to remind you, you can get these episodes two days early, every Thursday, by subscribing or following In This Economy in its own podcast feed, wherever you get podcasts. Plus, you will get some bonus episodes as we go, including one that's there already if you want to check it out that features myself and producer Steph Phillips chatting about why the heck we did this thing in the first place. For now, of course, you'll find every episode here on Saturdays. But if you want it early and you like the show, we hope you'll find us over there and give us a follow. Enjoy the show. I truly lost my confidence. I look in the mirror and I just kind of don't feel the same way I used to. And I just want to feel confident. Like so many of us, Daniela stopped taking care of her body during the pandemic. I think it's probably a long time coming combination of having a baby in 2019 and then the pandemic happening immediately after in 2020. Now that I'm getting back into my normal life, I'm just sort of realizing I'm not where I would like to be. I don't feel great. It's not even necessarily the aesthetics of it. I just like I'm getting older. I, I'm stiff all of the time. My body just doesn't feel as good as it used to. But I'm just like, I'm not that old. I shouldn't feel this cruddy. At 36 years old, Daniela is ready to start prioritizing her health. She lives in Toronto with her husband and their three-year-old daughter. I really want to focus on, like, investing in my body and making sure that it's going to be a usable body for as long as I have it. To help her stay on track, she hired a personal trainer and started seeing a dietitian. You know, the stuff you're supposed to do. But the stuff you're supposed to do to get healthy is pricey. It was sort of a death by a thousand cuts. Not only are vegetables more expensive, that stuff rots and wilts. If you get too much, all of a sudden you've just wasted all of your money. Or if you don't get it all at once, I feel like I'm going to the grocery store every day and spending so much more than I used to. And all of the like, I don't want to call them supplements, but all of these like additional things like chia seeds and hemp hearts like avocado and just realize like oh I really need running sneakers and those are quite expensive so now all of a sudden that's another expense and I was just like yowza this is this is adding up so far over three months Daniela estimates she's invested about $2,500 into her health journey it really made me think about just how lucky I am to be in the position where I can do this. And it just made me realize how like unaccessible health and like quote unquote wellness is. Like it's not even just my money, but it's also my time, which is also expensive. It was really eye-opening. It's a lot. It's a lot to ask people to be healthy. Daniela wants to know how the heck the average person can get healthy in this economy. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and yes, you're listening to In This Economy, a show that helps you understand the systems that create our money problems. From grocery bills to mortgage renewals and everything in between, we help you unpack what's happening behind the numbers. So in each episode, 
I talk to a real person facing a real financial challenge in their life. And then we find an expert who knows that area of the economy intimately and can explain the driving factors, the costs, and hopefully offer, if not solutions, then options, pivots, things you can do, even in this economy. Quote-unquote wellness, as Daniela put it, is an absolutely massive industry. It is huge. It's worth $4.4 trillion globally. Christy Harrison is a journalist and registered dietitian who has written extensively about modern wellness culture. She's here to teach us how this culture has changed our understanding of what it means to be healthy and how much it should cost to do it. The broad definition of wellness is that it's the practice of seeking to prevent illness and prolong life as opposed to simply treating diseases. But there's this clear emphasis on like individual choice and responsibility and taking matters into your own hands and preventing ever getting sick. Or if you do get sick, you're supposed to treat it through these quote unquote natural means and not use pharmaceuticals, but use food and exercise and supplements to restore your health. And it's it's become a huge industry. So wellness, you know, as a concept really didn't take root until the 1970s in that way that I just described of, Mm -hmm. you know, being conceived of as this like alternative to just treating illness. And at the time it was, it was conceived of as, you know, there was this individualistic element to it, but it was also conceived of much more holistically, like thinking about interconnections between people and psychological wellness and well-being and, you know, having good uh, social support and things like that. But over the years, I think because it became such an industry, it's it's been stripped away of a lot of that and now is focusing, you know, really almost solely for many people on food and exercise and supplements and weight loss. But there's, you know, I think those two things together, physical activity and eating and nutrition are really sort of the heart of what people think of when they think about wellness. So how did this industry get so big when it's literally selling two things that humans are already meant to do, eat healthy food and get exercise? Right. I think it's because, well, a couple of things. One, you know, the original definition of wellness was coming out of this 1970s counterculture where people were thinking about ways to, you know, oppose big business and big agriculture and stuff like that. And it's so funny that it's become such a big business unto itself. And so I think, you know, that that was sort of a culturally impactful moment that people were starting to think that way. And I think capitalism kind of seizes on trends, you know, it's like this trend that sort of maybe initially posed a threat in some way because it was like people are just going back to the land and like farming their own food or they're, you know, doing physical activity that doesn't really require a gym membership or something like that, you know, becomes co-opted and becomes something that can be sold and packaged and marketed to people. Give me an example of how it would be co-opted if you could. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in this day and age, we see just such a huge proliferation of diets of all kinds and, Uh you know, diets claiming not to be diets, diets saying they're anti-diets, diets saying, you know, this is a lifestyle, not a diet. It's not about counting calories. It's about only eating at certain times of the day, or it's about, you know, tracking your macros, or it's about cutting out this particular food group, et cetera. And so like people don't have, you know, it's not the sort of basic like fundamental, really easy nutritional stuff that 
most people could probably implement on their own, right? It's like, it's a whole system that's totally different from uh, the basics that people probably know. And so therefore requires people to buy in, to buy programs, to buy books, to, you know, follow people who are going to teach them how to do it and buy the products and all the things. How much of that is bullshit? You're a registered dietitian. Mm-hmm. I'd say most of it. I, the vast, vast majority, honestly. You know, for me as a registered dietitian, and I specialize in a, a practice called intuitive eating, which is really about just reconnecting with our body's internal hunger and fullness cues, rejecting diet culture and the diet mentality that have made so many of us really disordered in our eating and getting back to just the fundamental basics of nutrition that are so simple and easy and not really, you know, not this sort of restrictive mindset that so many people think of when they think of how they quote unquote should be eating healthy or whatever. And so, that's the way that I practice because I've looked into so many other ways of eating and, you know, fad diets and also diets that have a little bit more, you know, little bit more scientific evidence behind them. Mm-hmm. Still, the scientific evidence is so shaky, even for some of the best studied diets. And, you know, the vast majority of people who lose weight on a diet will regain it in the long run within two to five years. People end up weight cycling and that is actually worse for health in the long run mm-hmm. than just staying the same weight, even if it's a higher weight or a higher weight than you would like to be, you know, and the stigma, the weight stigma that comes along with that is really detrimental right. to people's well-being as well. That's a huge uh, risk factor for a lot of the things we blame on higher weight. So, you know, both because of, of that research and that evidence and also my own personal history of disordered eating and recovery and then working with clients who are recovering from disordered eating and chronic dieting, I've really seen the tremendous harm that dieting and restrictive eating can do to people and how much better it is for overall well-being to just strip away all of that, let go of the restriction and the deprivation and get back to some just, you know, simple, easy fundamentals that are really led and driven by your relationship with your body and by your body's cues. We're going to talk about that in a minute because I'm sure uh, Daniela is waiting to hear that. But first, I'm just, I'm so curious, you know, if so much of this is bullshit. How has it been so successfully commodified over more than 50 years since you mentioned it began in the 70s? And and you just mentioned it's almost a trillion dollar business today. Like if none mm-hmm. of it works, what the hell? Well, I think that's why, right? So the fact that it doesn't work actually is the seed of its success in a sense. Oh, great. People will go on a diet. They often will see some short-term benefit because the thing about diets is that in the short term, most diets will make people lose weight. You know, we're talking within six months to a year. Some people don't lose weight on a diet at all, even in that time frame, but a lot of people do. And so they'll think, okay, this diet's working. But the problem is that, you know, in the long run, people end up regaining all the weight they lost and often more. In two thirds of cases, they'll end up regaining more weight than they lost. And what happens Mm. is they blame themselves. They think, well, the diet worked clearly because I lost some weight in the beginning or, you know, if they're not doing it for weight loss, maybe they're doing it for health markers or something. And they're saying, well, my cholesterol improved at the beginning or my blood pressure or whatever it is, or I just felt better. But then, you know, I couldn't stick to it. And I was the problem, you know, is the failure was with was with me, not with the diet. And what actually is the case is that the human body is really designed to resist uh, sustained weight loss and to return to baseline and to, you know, heal from starvation because that's how our bodies experience dieting and deprivation. We experience that as starvation and famine. Our bodies don't really know the difference that we're actually trying to do this versus we're in a situation of famine. Right. And so we have all these biological mechanisms that lead us to regain lost weight, that lead us to, you know, eat lots of foods that we're 
off limits before that we were trying to avoid on diets. And so we end up, you know, reverting to baseline, sometimes regaining even more weight because our bodies really want to protect us from future famine. And then we blame ourselves when what we really should be blaming is the diet. But the industry, I think, really capitalizes on that, that sort of inherent failure of diets to say like, well, people will go through, you know, they'll have high hopes for one diet. They'll spend a bunch of money on one diet. It'll seem like it's working. Then it'll seem like it, you know, didn't work and the person couldn't stick to it. And so, you know, the person either will go back on that same diet or will say, maybe I just can't stick to a diet like this and I needed to try a diet like this, you mm-hmm. know, and so go to another diet and and another and another, and the industry can really proliferate in that way. In the same vein, before again, we talk about solutions, how did we manage to commodify exercise in, in the same way? Yeah, I think it's, you know, in some sense, it's similar in the way that, again, weight loss through exercise really isn't sustainable, you know, weight loss in general really isn't sustainable. And so if people are pursuing exercise to try to lose weight, again, they might seem to have some weight loss in the beginning or have some short-term weight loss and then over time regain the lost weight. And so they might think, okay, I need to do this harder. I need to double down or I need to try a different exercise plan. One thing Daniela kept saying is that she needed somebody to keep her accountable, which is what sent her searching for trainers and gyms and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that idea of being kept accountable really speaks to this underlying relationship with fitness that is punishing and sort of instrumental, right? Because, you know, if it feels like something you don't want to do, it's not joyful, it's really just a chore. Yeah, you're probably going to feel like you need someone to keep you accountable to that because you just don't want to do it. But if you can get to a relationship with it where it feels good, where it is joyful, where it's maybe something that's more part of your day-to-day activity that, you know, you can incorporate with your family or something like that, it's not something that you really need to be quote unquote kept accountable for. And I think a lot of people have little moments of physical activity in their day that they're not necessarily counting as exercise that are actually more joyful. And Mm. so, you know, I'd I'd encourage anyone who's looking to get back into a, a physical activity routine to just start to think about like, how do I actually like to move my body? What are some ways I do move my body in my day to day life that I could um, incorporate, you know, dance party with my kids or going for a walk or, Mm. you know, running around the park or something like that. You've mentioned it a couple times now, so I'm just going to ask it. You know, Daniela, and I'm sure many other people who have clicked on this episode and are listening want to lose weight. And you're here saying most weight loss is not sustainable. What does that mean? Yeah, well, so my approach might sound radical to some people, but I really have arrived at it through many years of research, through my own experience, through, you know, working with many, many people at the higher end of the weight spectrum and with colleagues at the higher end of the weight spectrum who've done this work for a long time. And what the evidence really shows and what my clinical experience really shows is that weight loss is not only not sustainable, but it's often harmful to people's overall well-being, which includes mental and physical and emotional health. And so to really have long-term well-being, to really facilitate people having the best health outcomes that they can, I think clinicians and, you know, doctors and dietitians, et cetera, really need to start promoting behaviors that are going to be sustainable and fun for people, regardless of weight. And we see in the research that when people are actually in that peaceful relationship with food and moving their bodies for joy and pleasure, 
it doesn't really matter what what part of the weight spectrum they end up at, they have better health outcomes than people who are dieting and then people who are, you know, perhaps at the same at the same weight part of the weight spectrum that they are that are not engaging in those behaviors. This is me waving a big easy bullseye target in front of you right now, but how much of this has to do with popular beauty standards? Oh yeah, a lot. Uh, I think that's that's one of the hallmarks of diet culture, right? My first book, Anti Diet, I really looked at diet culture and its roots and how it how it harms people and sort of shapes our views of health and wellness. And diet culture is the system of beliefs that worships weight loss and equates it to higher status, promotes thinness as a way of achieving you know health and moral virtue, demonizes certain foods while elevating others, and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health and well-being, and uses that picture of health and well-being against people, you know, uses it to sell people things, but also to make them feel bad about themselves so that they will buy things. And it's a huge part of of what has driven this industry and these beauty standards really come from pretty oppressive places. You know, there's a book called Fearing the Black Body by a sociologist named Sabrina Strings that talks about how anti-fat bias was rooted in anti-black racism Hmm. and how that, you know, those roots have sort of become obscured over the years. And now we don't really talk explicitly about, you know, not wanting to look like a, a black person, but that was literally what was in the women's magazines in the 1800s was, you know, this racist language that that was promoting weight loss. Um, And from there, we sort of had the idea of, you know, thinness and weight loss and a thin body being a good body kind of permeated out into the culture and started to take over in health and medicine. We didn't really see a lot of doctors demonizing higher weight until anti-fat bias was already sort of rooted in the culture. And then we started to see, you know, thinner and thinner beauty standards for women over the years was flappers in the 1920s. And then it was, you know, ever thinner, um, with the exception of a few periods where it would be like, oh, slightly curvier, but then back to even thinner Mm. beauty ideals throughout the years. And we're seeing that now, you know, I think we saw, we were sort of in a brief period of reprieve where different kinds of bodies and curvier, larger bodies were a little bit more celebrated. But now with the diet drugs, the thin ideal is becoming central again. Of those trillions of dollars in the wellness industry, how much is driven by that beauty standard you just described. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to put a, a exact number on it, but it's, I'd say a lot, you know, perhaps perhaps all or most. Because I think when you talk to people about what they're looking for with their health and wellness, you know, sometimes people will say, and I think increasingly now, diets don't want to say they're diets. People, it's sort of uncool to say you're dieting or that you want to lose weight. So it might be couched in more covert language. And I think we really see this in the wellness industry where it's like, reduce bloating, improve your gut health, you know, but then you see before Mm -hmm. and after pictures of like bellies shrinking or, you know, you'll feel lighter and sort of better and more comfortable in your skin or whatever. But then it's like a before and after picture of you know, a person getting thinner. And when you really talk to people about their reasons for wanting to pursue wellness, often it kind of comes back to this fundamental thing of wanting to look quote unquote better, wanting to look closer to the beauty ideal. And, you know, it's not that people are shallow because I think what's underneath that desire is really a desire for like love, connection, belonging, success, you know, all of the things that we desire and deserve as human beings, I think are presented as those things being available to us with the ticket, the price of admission being looking a certain way. And that, you know, we're sort of 
presented this idea that we're not allowed to have those things if we don't look a certain way. So I think it's it goes really deep and it's really understandable that people have this desire to adhere to beauty ideals, but I think it's also really harmful and detrimental. And expensive. And expensive. Yeah, detrimental to your bottom line and your your bank account, you know, more than anything. How much should it cost to eat healthy and get exercise? Yeah, you know, it really shouldn't cost much of anything to be in good health or to take care of your well-being. I typically don't say, you know, eat healthy necessarily because I think that can uh, connote a lot of restrictive ideas for people. But, you know, to take care of your well-being or to promote good mental and physical and emotional health, I think shouldn't have to cost much at all. And, you know, a lot of this also has to do with economic inequality and issues with, you know, access to food, access to healthcare, access to mm-hmm. places to to have safe physical activity and things like that. So I think we have to do a lot better at equalizing access to those things. And that's really at the policy level. That's something that individuals can't necessarily, you know, do themselves. But I think, you know, regardless, like for people who who have the means to be participating in this $4.4 trillion global wellness industry, I think reducing your spending in that industry and actually starting to get back in touch with what really brings you joy, what really brings you pleasure, what are you hungry for? What nourishes and sustains you? What's, you know, culturally important and the foods that connect you with your family and your culture? Those are the things that I think we need to be paying more attention to and that, you know, diet and wellness culture totally dismiss. So let's put this into real terms then. Let's leave aside the stigmas around certain foods and healthy or not. Um, And let's look at how you can eat effectively and intuitively without breaking your bank. What does that look like? What does a shopping list look like? Like, tell me Mm. how somebody like Daniela would go about keeping these thoughts in, in her mind and heading to the grocery store with a certain amount of money in her pocket. Yeah, I think that's that's key, first of all, is like keeping in mind your budget and what you have to work with and not beating yourself up if you're not able to eat in this sort of wellness culture approved way. With you can't like, afford the kale. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing that I would say is to make a list and try to include on that list like a, a variety of foods, really a variety, I think is is a huge key to this. So um, making sure that you have enough carbs in the house to have a carb at every meal, which I know can sound like heresy for people who mm, are that sounds you know, good to me though. Wedded to this low carb diet. But yeah, that really is such a such a core component of meals that are going to nourish and satisfy you, you know, meals around the world, like throughout history. It's really interesting to see how central carbohydrates are. So having a variety of things on hand that you like, you know, whether it's rice and tortilla whether it's potatoes, you know, pasta, et cetera, et cetera, right? So having a variety of, of carbs and starches for your meals, having a variety of protein sources, you know, so meat, fish, eggs, cheese, you know, whatever, beans and delicious protein sources for you. Having a variety of fats on hand, you know, salad dressings, sauces, oils, butter, things like that to make your food taste really good, to give it that satisfying factor, you know, and to help cook Mm. things in an appealing way. And so when you think about all those things, you know, making sure that you have all those components, right, carbohydrate, protein, and fat sort of 
a variety of those things within your budget and then building meals around that by adding fruits and vegetables that would go well with them, you know, so that's where you can start to bring in, okay, if I'm making, you know, a tortilla with, you know, chicken and rice and um, maybe I want to have some beans with that or maybe I want to get some cilantro or maybe I want to have, you know, tomato salsa to, to complement that meal. You know, thinking about things that are really going to be satisfying and tasty using all of those components, I think is one big thing. And just you know, letting yourself understand what you really want rather than second guessing or talking yourself out of it. People might not be ready to just buy everything that their first is sort of their first desire, but just knowing what your first desire is and noticing, isn't that interesting that I'm talking myself out of this thing that looked so good to me and telling Mm -hmm. myself I need to get the low fat version or the low carb version, or I need to do something totally different because I'm not really allowed to have that food. And as you start to be able to challenge these restrictive thoughts, you can start to actually put those things in your cart. In the same vein, while I still have you here, I want to ask you about exercise because Mm -hmm. this is a tough one for me to wrap my head around because I assume that when you ask a wellness expert or or a dietitian or a doctor for advice on how to exercise without breaking the bank, they'll be like, just go outside and walk, just go Mm -hmm. run. But obviously people struggle to do that. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people struggle with physical activity. I think one big reason that I see a lot is that people have such negative associations with it because they've been so stigmatized for their body size or they associate exercise with punishment for how they look or punishment for poor health, that it really doesn't feel joyful and it doesn't feel something they're intrinsically motivated to do. Mm. So I think when you are intrinsically motivated to do something, it's like, yeah, I can go for a walk because it feels good or I can go play in the park with my kids or I can you know, go for a bike ride with family or something like that because it's fun. But when you're in this place of thinking about exercise as punishment and as, you know, solely tied to changing the size and shape of your body or something that your doctor is telling you to do with this like huge dose of fear added to it. Like if you don't do this, you're going to get diabetes or you're going to die early or whatever it is. I think it, it really takes the joy and the intrinsic motivation out of it. So if people can start to like you know, unearth all that stuff, all their negative beliefs about physical activity and really heal that stuff, which I know is a process and it's not easy and it it takes time. It is possible to get back to a place where you're viewing physical activity as, as a joy and as something that can feel good or be incorporated into your life in helpful ways. Like maybe it's not necessarily joy to do physical therapy for an injury, but you know it's going to be helpful mm. in the long run because it's going to help you reduce pain and things like that. Um, so there are ways of thinking about physical activity that are about self-care, not about self-control and deprivation. How do you break that connection? Because I think so much of And again, when Daniela mentions accountability, I hear it again. So much of our focus on exercise is about like, you know, no pain, no gain and Mm -hmm. hitting. I mean, I'm addicted to looking at the number of steps or exercise minutes (laughs) on my watch right here. How do we break that and become able to view exercise the way you describe it? Like, what's the first step there? Yeah, I guess the first step is just awareness. I think it it comes back to that for so many different things, you know, becoming aware of how much time you're spending thinking about physical activity in these punishing ways or sort of instrumental ways. What are the beliefs that you've internalized about it? Where did those beliefs come from? Do you really agree with those things? You know, do you want physical activity to be more of a joy and something that you can do in a sustained way? Or are you kind of wedded to this 
instrumental way of doing it. You know, some people might not be ready to change their relationship with physical activity and that's okay. You know, you might be in a place where you're sort of using it as a coping skill for something or you're, you know, you're just really wedded to this way of relating to physical activity. But if you, if you sort of are hearing what I'm saying and thinking like, yeah, that sounds good. Like that sounds like what I want and I'm not happy with how my relationship with physical activity is. Just sort of opening up to the possibility that it could be different and looking at all the things in your life right now that are standing in the way of that joyful, intrinsic, intuitive relationship with movement. I really appreciate everything Christy shared with us today. And I think a lot of us want to feel like we're being healthy the right way. That we're eating the right things, doing the right exercises, hitting the right number of steps on the right fitness tracker. And that's how we end up paying to feel healthy instead of not spending money but actually being healthy. So to summarize, if you want to live a healthy lifestyle in this economy... Here's all you have to do. Number one, make a list before you go to the grocery store. Plan your meals for the week around carbs, proteins, and fats. Then decide what fruits and vegetables you want to incorporate. The end result should be filling, satisfying, and personalized. Number two, don't feel bad if you can't afford the latest health food trend or to stock up on every supplement you read about. Instead, challenge yourself to honor your cravings by listening to your body's natural cues. And number three, you don't need the expensive gym membership unless you absolutely love it. You can find ways to incorporate movement into your daily life that work for you and that you actually enjoy. Consider what makes you happy to be moving. If you want to do it with other people, your local community center hosts affordable drop-ins and classes ranging from racket sports to swimming at some of them to Pilates and cycling. If you're not into those and you have some free floor space at home, you can literally check out hundreds of fitness instructors on YouTube who share free workouts and movement classes. Beyond the community center and YouTube, if you're looking for people to work out with who are near you, Just head over to Instagram or Facebook or Nextdoor or any app that you use to find things in your community. Look up things like walking groups, running groups, sports clubs. There might be a small fee to the organizer. Some of them are even free. And there's a community group for just about everything at this point, from queer pickleball players to adult skateboarders. I know for me, having a place where people expect me to show up and in the case of a team might even be counting on me, is a great way to get me to show up and get moving. Remember, this industry profits from us always feeling like we are not enough, that we're too dumb to buy the right food, too lazy to exercise without someone yelling at us or holding us accountable, too ugly to run in public or just play on the grass or whatever in those old clothes. The secret, and I mean this literally and figuratively, is to just not buy that crap. Thank you so much to Christy Harrison for being our expert on this episode. She is the author of The Wellness Trap and Anti-Diet. She also produces and hosts two podcasts, Rethinking Wellness and Food Psych. You can find all of her work at christyharrison.com. And of course, thank you to Daniela 
for writing into the show with your money problem. If you, like Daniela, have a money problem, we would love to hear from you. Share it with us. Give us a place to start. You can email us at hello at itepod.ca or you can call us and leave us a voicemail. The number is 416-935-5935. We don't need your real name. We do need your real numbers. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok at In This Economy Pod. I'm your host, Jordan Heath Rawlings. I'm also the executive producer of this show. This episode was written and produced by Stephanie Phillips. Sound design was done by Ryan Clark. Story editing by Ali Graham. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. And together, we're the Frequency Podcast Network. Thank you for listening. See you next week on In This Economy.